0: As you can see, it's a day in which um, a lot of our teachers have a well-deserved time off. Um, And so you're left with me, (laughs) (laughs) which is actually great. (laughs) So again, it's my pleasure to be here with you and to deliver the Dharma talk for this evening. And this evening we're going to begin by exploring just one of these Dharma doors. It's said that there are 84,000 Dharma doors that you can open into this field of awakening. So this is just one. I could probably name all 84, but I won't right now. I'm just gonna give you the one. And this door can open us up to a journey towards freedom. Freedom that is found when we allow our whole being to take a deep breath and acknowledge what exists as an undeniable fact that we all sit in the heart of dukkha. Our insufferable lived experience and present moment experience pressing so profoundly on our hearts. On Thursday evening, Philip gave a talk on the Four Noble Truths, and it culminated with the Fourth Noble Truth, the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path actually shows how tactical and precisely engineered the steps that the Buddha offered us, offered his community of followers, both monks and nuns. This is the same teaching that has been passed down for the last 2,600 years to all of us, those who are devoted to the Dharma and also devoted to the path of liberation. What ties these truths together is the Buddha's realization of their interconnection, how closely Each of the remaining lists, and you've heard them, Seven Factors of Awakening, um, Ten Paramis, there's many lists that are out there in this cosmology. They tie together the lists and philosophies and just see how interconnected they are. They weave both wisdom and compassion together, blending clear trajectory for us, steps that we can take, and then they're offered to us as gifts if we're willing to receive them. The connection between the Eightfold Path ties to the seven factors of awakening, ties to the elements of the Dhammas that we heard last night, ties to the hindrances that Therese spoke to on Wednesday evening, ties to the fundamental source of mindful awareness, that we're practicing every evening, every day, listening to the first foundation from the Satipatthana Sutta. It Ties to the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes, the immeasurables, in which I'll be speaking a little bit on this evening. I always entitle my talks, I don't know why, I think it's kind of cute or something. And so this evening, the title of my talk, oh, I just want to back up a moment. I'll tell you, the very first time I taught was uh, many, many years ago. I was at East Bay Meditation Center. And I was just, I was asked to to write a talk and deliver it, and I was so nervous. I'm nervous now, actually. And um, the talk was entitled impermanence, butterflies, and hot flashes. (laughs) So tonight's talk is compassion and self-compassion, the courage to turn towards suffering while turning towards wisdom and freedom. So this evening, it's going to be a talk around about compassion, about how we look at the suffering in our lives, and then how do we cultivate this beautiful heart space? Um, I was just talking to Dara a little bit this evening. As I was walking up uh, to come here to the hall, something caught my mind. And for all the years that I've been practicing, one of the things that is my intention is to understand the true nature of my mind. And I think that's, many of us come for that, you know, we, we, we We have a little clearer understanding of what happens when hindrances arise or the many other things that affect a clear and calm mind. But are we inclined to understand the true nature of our hearts? And I just want to say that the heart, our hearts, everyone's heart, is really only this big. And it does so much for us just this big, pumping, pumping, just this big. So we'll be exploring compassion, Karuna, the second of the Brahma Viharas, of these heart qualities. Karuna, like all the other heart practices, are boundless in nature. It allows us to navigate the rich territory that can open the door of awakening one of those 84,000 Dharma doors. And it brings us to a fierce recognition of how with skillful intention, a much closer view of the immensity of human suffering can be realized. Our conscious heart minds are somewhat primed to have the experience of both sorrow and joy. You've heard the phrase, 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Suffering and happiness. All with its delicate duality and complexities. Those are the realities of our lives. And our lives are met with also the vicissitudes of life, the eight worldly winds. Pressure and pain. Gain and loss. Praise and blame, fame and shame. Ever-changing, always impermanent. And I'm sure, well, I guess I'll ask the question, how many of you have not felt the winds of the vicissitudes hit us? Just as we're sitting on our seat and we've got that, ah, right, that place where the breath is present, The mind is still, and something arises to somewhat knock you off your perch. So I want to do something that I've been doing for quite a few years, and that's defining the words that I'm using. So the definition of compassion is a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate that suffering. So if we dissect the definition a little bit, we see that the inference is there's a sense of sympathy and sorrow, both holding space, accompanied by a desire to alleviate it. Whether seen or heard or thought about, this realization of seeing suffering in ourselves or others moves the heart from the inside out. The desire to alleviate delivers what seems to be a code to act. Or maybe it's the feeling of the quivering of your heart so deeply that the mind is inclined towards movement. There are a lot of other ways we can examine what this compassion really means. We can dissect it little by little. Or we can just feel into the fact that there is, that we really do all possess the capacity and the ability to have sympathy for others. Paired with sorrow, seeing the suffering. How each of these feelings or emotions can ride through our hearts and minds simultaneously. How the quest or desire to alleviate suffering comes with a myriad of complexities all to itself. And this week we've heard this word cultivate. Cultivate a still mind. But I'm gonna, again, just kind of define that sense of cultivation. To cultivate means to try to acquire or develop a quality, a sentiment, or skill. And that's what we're doing here. We're cultivating the mind, the heart, for stillness, for the skill in which to navigate those. As with your entire mindfulness practice, certain essential elements are needed to present themselves in order for us to engage in a deep and wide perspective. We need our body and minds, energy, and emotions. In combination, and this is what's really key here, we need an awakened heart. Clear, wise, intentional, to develop and cultivate a compassionate heart. We need those qualities, those elements. Venerable Analio, which we've been speaking about, he actually wrote the book that we've been holding up, the blue book, the Satipatthana. In his book, Compassion and Emptiness, he says, engaging in the cultivation of compassion thereby also becomes an implementation of right effort. And it's successful practice can come to fulfill the path factor of right concentration. Undertaken in this way, the cultivation of compassion can fulfill several aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path. The cultivation of compassion could even be used as one's main vehicle of practice. Pema says it this way, this tenderness for life, the bodhicitta, awakens when we no longer shield ourselves from the vulnerability of our condition, from the basic fragility of existence. We train in the Bodhisattva practices in order to become so open that we can take the pain of the world in, let it touch our hearts, and turn it into compassion. It is said that when we see suffering in the world, we meet it with loving-kindness. And that's where the unfolding and the opening of our heart space begins. When cultivating a pathway to compassion and freedom, it starts with a renewed and resourceful heart. And it begins with taking action, compassionate action. Christina Feldman, from her book Boundless Heart, says it this way, compassion asks us to take the seat in the center of the landscape of pain and distress. And I'm going to repeat that again because I think it really holds particular weight to it. Compassion asks us to take a seat in the center of the landscape of pain and despair. The inquiry here is whether this path the path of cultivating a devotional practice can hold all of your integrity, your goodwill, and your desire to transcend your lives beyond a hardened, closed heart that often gets encrusted on a daily basis. Sitting in the center of pain and distress, meeting it with love and kindness are ancient teachings. They're not just holding space exclusively in the dharma. You'll find it preached in churches, temples, and synagogues, and across the world for centuries by indigenous wisdom holders. These truths have been taught as devotional practices by scholars, teachers, and clerics alike. But although well-intended, and the intentions are wise, or seemingly wise. Cultivating a compassionate practice with these teachings seems to me oftentimes to fall short. Even by those who are revered and holding those that wisdom. While we incline to embody and manifest these well-intended virtues, we also know that harmful abuses towards people of color, women, children, the LGBT community, our planet, did not show up as wise and meaningful compassion. In fact, probably on a constant basis, I know for myself, you're probably reflecting on on how very little compassion there is in the world. So I contend that taking our seats in the center of suffering, our own or others, we're stretched to understand beyond what is within our somewhat fragile comfort zone, the reality of the first noble truth. And the Buddha's definitive statement, I teach only one thing, there is dukkha, and the end of dukkha. It is the conditionality of our lives, barring none. For the Buddha, in his time after his enlightenment, He used compassion, his way of really feeling into what needed to be done to further this teaching. It kept him on this path. He became a teacher and a liberator. For 45 years, he preached in the face of criticism, opposition, and misunderstanding. But it was done because he knew that at least it would touch people. Maybe it didn't touch everyone, but it would touch a few. He also taught the message that suffering is universal, but definitively made compassion the opposite of this truth. He stressed his message as compassion, liberative action to his monastic sanghas. When he sent out his first 60 Arhants to teach, his words were, go forth, bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, benefit, and happiness of all gods, goddesses, men, women, and people. These are worldly statements. These are statements of action. Turning the compassionate heart into... Compassion in action. I think when I first introduced myself on, boy, now it's been a week, Saturday, I said that I live in Oakland. In fact, more specifically, I live in East Oakland. And it's an area that was once burgeoning, was a burgeoning middle class, working class area that afforded veterans who came back in World War II, African-Americans, Latinx, Asian families, the opportunity to buy homes and to grow their cultural communities. Just recently, and I think it might have been about towards the end of last year, the New York Times did a video expose of the homeless crisis in Oakland. The homeless population in Oakland has grown in the last two years by 47%. And nearly 70% of the people who are homeless are African American men. The streets are filled with homeless encampments under freeway overpasses. These encampments are on the rise. This is what I would call a dire crisis. The city and state have decreased funds and they've increased funds. They've done what they think they're doing correctly or wisely to accommodate the crisis and yet still the population grows. The best right now the city can do is to put up porta potties or temporary shed housing. But what they haven't addressed, and they haven't had any inroads under, is around the mental health, addiction, and poverty aspects of homelessness. So when I scrolled through the video that, uh, from the New York Times, my heart sank. I just had this feeling of immense sorrow, but also I had a feeling of immense embarrassment. How could these viable human beings be denied their basic right for housing, food, equal opportunities? How could they be ignored or just dismissed? So what I had to do is I had to examine what my heart-mind was going through. Not just the fact that I was, my heart had sank, but what was my response to it? What could I do? How can I make a difference? Is it enough to merely pay property taxes and, you know, hopefully the city is gonna make improvements? Is it enough to drive by the camps viewing from afar? Or maybe during the holidays, taking old jackets and blankets. Is that enough? Martin Luther King wrote, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice that produces beggars needs reconstruction. And that was from his speech in 1967 beyond Vietnam at the Riverside Church in New York. And seeing this really began pretty much a journey for me to witness my own conditioned state. But the number one impact that I had was not just the witnessing of each time I drove by the camps, what was my response, what was my heart, looking at the degree of suffering and despair, but the other side of it, which was how my compassion heightened, how looking at the suffering actually had me wanting to be, to take action, to not close my eyes. And for me it became very much like what is spoken to in the Acharya Dharmapala's words, maha karuna, the great compassion. I really... feel that something has shifted for me. Our experiences of turning away from the truth of suffering has caused a deeper, more penetrating pain than what is witnessed before our eyes and our hearts. I actually understand the tendency to mask the suffering. We see so much in our social media feeds around what's happening in the world in our lives. I mean, it's unbelievable, it's too much. What we're faced with on a constant basis, the barrage of information. These deep imprints have colored our views, emotions, and thoughts, especially with how much is going on. And suffering from all parts of the world, which so many cannot be erased or forgotten. The migrant children, the global wars, poverty, hunger, climate crisis, it's all there. We can probably, that's just a few I named. I'm sure we all have our own, the injustices, the things that are happening to the human condition. One of my dear teachers, Tanesara, writes in her book, Time to Stand Up, at this most calamitous of times, the Buddha's message is more important than ever as we meet the terrifying challenge of climate change and the likely energy and social revolutions it will initiate, we will be thrust into into devastating and exhilarating realities. Everything is changing now, very fast. And so taking the Buddha's example to heart, we know compassion as the overarching intention for navigating the inner and outer landscape of our worlds. Compassion. Not turning away. Being able to look at suffering right here. Meeting it in the ways that we can. Her words, Tanesera's words, they sound somewhat bleak. And yet... We've all had thoughts about what are we experiencing today, and more importantly for me, what my thoughts are is what are future generations going to inherit? What is my grandson, who's turning three, going to inherit? And what will Nana be able to say to him? So let's take a moment and explore with our fierce yet tender hearts, how when we confront suffering, our hearts are truly asking us to take that seat directly in the center of suffering. We may meet it at a point of our own discomfort and sometimes in discomfort, that's where the true lessons are. That's where we meet our edge And sometimes we go beyond it, and then there's maybe some liberation in there along that path. And maybe we meet it with the sensations of a quivering heart. Aversion, ignorance, and greed exists when we only see what our heart minds want to see. That's that's delusion creating limited views, and closes out the opportunity to realize the truth of our existence. We all experience suffering, not just the people here or there. We all have that existing in our lives. The essential elements of our heart movement towards clarity is seeing what what is, but seeing it with softening the heart taking away the the hardness that our conditions and our society has put upon us. Allowing our hearts to be sensitive, pure, allowing us to be in the landscape of suffering without creating either an unnecessary narrative that helps us turn away, possibly turning compassion into somewhat of a cruel aspect, or opening us up to pity or detachment. These are part of the near and far enemies of these Brahma viharas and specifically Karuna. Although my personality is one to be a fix-it kind of person. You know, if you're suffering, I want to fix it. If you're hurting I want to fix it if you're distressed I want to fix it if you're sorrowful I want to make you happy but I've also have to ask myself is that really what needs to happen fixing it or is it meeting where I'm at meeting where you're at meeting where the world is at. Softening our hearts in a hardened world is an act requiring the cultivation of compassion and action. All the heart practices, and we've gone through probably four or five days of metta, at least four days of metta, loving kindness, appreciative joy, mudita, equanimity, upeka. And compassion, karuna, all of these heart practices are revolutionary and radical practices. They're not passive. And I really stress that because sometimes there's this difference of wisdom and heart. And heart is, you know, oh, your heart is so pure, you're wishing me good wishes. And yet, there's some fierceness around that. What does it take for us to actually send well wishes or compassion to another person or joy. They require wise attention, wise intention, and wise action. And there's this, again, this interconnection. When I did the Brahma Viharas the other day, I talked about how each of the Brahma Viharas meet each other and are dependent, interdependent upon each other. In the Vasugamga, Buddhadasa tr- his translation of compassion is this. When there is suffering in others, it causes good people's hearts to be moved. Thus, it is compassion. Or alternatively, it combats others' suffering and demolishes it. Thus, it is compassion. Or alternatively, it scatters upon those who suffer or extended to them by pervasion, thus this is compassion. Compassion then can be viewed by really what moves the heart into action. What moves us into taking action from just the view to actually wanting to do something and not necessarily just fix it. James Baldwin writes in his book Sonny's Blues For while the tale of how we suffer, and how we are delighted, and how we may triumph is never new, it always must be heard. There isn't any other tale to tell. It's the only light we've got in all this darkness. So cultivating a compassionate heart has been my journey and practices of late. Maybe it started well before the New York Times um, video expose. It started when I just began to realize that this heart needed tending to as well. But it's been a slow, slow slog <laughs> of opening and, and, and having my heart soften. I was never taught or it was never taught to me how liberating and freeing my heart could be, Could how I could do that, changing the con- wounded conditioning of my upbringing. It was never taught that. I grew up in Los Angeles in South LA. My father, Larry, Alexander, he was a brilliant man, super smart, intellectually stellar, curious. He was able to fix anything. If you came to our house in the 50s and 60s, you would have seen popular mechanics books, magazines piled up. He just wanted to fix things. And because he was so curious and questioning, he was now able to navigate complex theories and he was a black man who lived within and without society's conditioning and patterning for him he was born in 1927 raised by a single mother during the depression found a great affinity towards jazz and he was kind of a hipster you know even as i was growing up he was the one dad who had the long fingernail you know <laughs> right and you know, I remember him wearing, um, we would go to my grandmother's and my aunts and uncles would come over and he would be wearing the ascot and the colorful pants, you know, the 60s garb. He was married twice, had three children, four children I have a younger brother, and he faced his tormented versions while raising his family in the 50s. When I was a child, I witnessed all this frustration you know his, the, all the different levels of his state of being, and he was at the effect of his despair from not being seen as a fu- full human being, as a substantial man, as a father, a provider, a husband. So what I didn't see, or even could even comprehend, at that young age. Was how those struggles and suffering of being black in America mounted exponentially over time. But I was wounded by him, his inability to understand how to deal, or at least was faced with all the things that he had to deal with in his life. I also witnessed my mother as a long-time sufferer. And I wonder how her legacy has impacted my life by seeing her live through her grief and sorrow with each year keeping silent and suffering. And as I said, as a child, I wasn't taught how to cultivate a discerning, compassionate mind heart. So it took me years to see how the external conditions and deep oppression had gripped and crippled this brilliant man, my father, Larry. They rendered him helpless to exit the cycle of his own suffering. Both my parents are ancestors now, free from their torments, from their internalized conditioning, free from their probably disappointed lives. But eventually, having immersed myself in my own practice for these many years, I really understand the lessons that I didn't understand then that I can now understand now. They've become my guidepost. They've become my beacon of light. They've allowed me to understand how I can cultivate empathy, tender, tender, and a compassionate heart. And really allows me to take it, make an earnest attempt to sit in the center and take a seat. I've drawn from these lessons of my youth, now reflecting on how to respond versus react to what is seen and felt in the world and in myself. Just not getting nodded looking at my own habituations, whether to fix it or turn away. And we all have those sense in ourselves when it's just too much. It's too hard to bear, to look at. We turn. We turn our gaze, we turn our hearts, we turn our minds away. Again, Christine Fellman Compassion asks us not to be discouraged or disheartened by movements of dissidence. These are the very moments we're invited to reestablish our home in these deepest aspirations and manifest them in the ways we engage with life. Courage asks for perseverance, the willingness to realign our lives moment to moment with a compassionate heart. We cultivate and renew these commitments to healing and suffering and uprooting its causes both inwardly and outwardly. This is what we're doing in our practice. We're really asking ourselves, can we sit in the seat, in the center of that seat, and look at both inward and outward suffering? Can we build upon this little heart muscle that we have to expand it, to soften it, to be able to receive. But the one thing that the Buddha did not just pronounce was to his monks was the cultivation of compassion that we only turn towards others. But he also stressed self-compassion as a gateway to the total absorption of this heart factor in one of his suttas, the bamboo acrobat, he speaks about a man who was the lead acrobat and he told his uh, assistant, we'll both climb up this bamboo pole and then you protect me and I'll protect you. And, and then we can make a show of it, we can make some money and then we'll climb down the pole and we'll be just fine. And the apprentice said, no, we'll climb up the pole and you protect you, and I'll protect myself. And then we'll both climb down the pole. But we have to turn ourselves, as we're looking at compassion, and especially compassion in action, looking at this boundless quality that we have, we also have to, as I say, turn the mirror this way, and look at how do we actually find the compassion in our own hearts. How do we look at ourself, our own suffering, without turning away from it? And there's much wisdom that can be gained. Last year, towards the end of the year, I was traveling back east, I was going to Baltimore to teach. And you know when you're on an airplane, you kind of settle in your seat and then the attendant comes up and starts talking, you know? And anymore, we're always on, you know, I, if I'm on a plane, I'm not really listening. You know, sometimes I do, but most of the time I know how to put my seatbelt on. You know, I know my tray has to come up, and I know I can't get up if the sign says, do not get up, <laughs> right? So I don't. But something grabbed my attention last year as I was, we were about to take off, and the attendant said please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others and i think i probably heard that i don't know thousands of times if you've traveled you know hundreds of times maybe and it was it was the right lesson at the right time please place your mask place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hmm. Perfect, wasn't it? (laughs) This idea of self-compassion. Taking care of oneself. How do we meet and face the pain of other beings without facing the suffering that embodies our own being? We often fail to consider ourselves in the model of Compassion cultivation, especially because our altruistic tendencies are to reach out beyond ourselves and help others. You know, my tendency is to fix it. We have to consider how to practice deep and soulful karuna towards all beings, excluding none, including ourselves. We must see ourselves as worthy of our own loving care. Acquiring the fortitude and awareness of being truth-tellers of our own suffering requires us to definitely take that seat. Ready to look at the transition from ignorance, hiding, or reacting, especially to any shameful experiences, to fully embracing mindful, loving, compassion. When we begin the process of self-reflective healing, we are more apt to open fully when we begin to use wise view and wise intention. The act of cultivating self-compassion takes effort. And it's like being a spiritual warrior without the armor. Spiritual warrior of the softened heart. I like that. Spiritual warrior of the softened heart. The fearlessness of compassion that leads us directly into the suffering of life. Fearless. Compassion recognizes the inevitable suffering of life and our need, if not our motivation, to face dukkha in order to learn, to heal, to transform. So as we begin to turn the mirror inward towards ourselves, a recognition of our habit patterns surface. Those that we may have held held you very captive and unable to free yourself from the unhealthy and bounded emotional and mental states. They are subtle, nuanced. Their patterns that are really difficult to detect. But that's where practice comes in. If we avoid or wipe away our tears, discounting the pain and suffering lodged within and without, we won't be able to see those tears as a gift, a gift of awakening. We won't have the capacity to hold what we need to hold, to face what we need to face. opening our tender hearts, you know, those soft warrior hearts, that spiritual warrior that you will become. It leads to the long journey towards wisdom and freedom. Our practice of self-compassion helps us survive. It helps us Take, and take ourselves from the hardened heart to a soft, malleable heart. It allows us to see the cries of the world differently, with eyes wide open, without turning away. Pema children again says, instead of asking ourselves How can I find security and happiness? We should ask ourselves, can I touch the center of my pain? Can I sit with suffering, both yours and mine, without trying to make it go away? Can I stay present to the ache of loss or disgrace, disappointment in all of its many forms? and let it open me. Can I stay present to the ache of loss and disappointment in all of its many forms and let that open me? Another dear teacher of mine, Eugene Cash, often says, let's get real together. you have heard him say that. Let's get real together. I want to invite us to get free together. This invitation extends to cultivating a deep practice for both the inner and the outer qualities of a compassionate heart. To realize that liberation is possible through indwelling, through that state of indwelling in these qualities, the Maha Karuna, the great compassion. From Tenesar and Kitasaro, a present aware and listening heart, attuned to the deeper intuitive intelligence of the Dharma, of life and nature manifests as wisdom and compassion. So just remember to please place the mask over your mouth and nose before assisting others. turning the mirror this way, touching into the softness of your own heart. I know that there are times when my heart gets so hardened that I walk around in my own despair. And many of you may have heard this story before, but I carry a little shovel right here. It's about this big, just a little shovel. And when I find that my heart has hardened, due to all the outside conditions, due to my own inner conditioning, I take the shovel and I start chipping away, just little by little, you know, flicking it, flicking the the crust away so that my heart can become again soft, malleable, receiving, pulsating, compassionate. And then I put my shovel away And sometimes I have to pull it out more than once in a day, just depending. And then sometimes I'm amazed at how this compassionate heart can actually live freely within this body, within this mind. So in ending, I have a couple of poems I'd like to read to you. The first is from an essay by June Jordan, 1994. We need each other, we need each of us to begin the awesome, difficult work of love. Loving ourselves so that we become able to love other people without fear. So that we can become powerful enough to enlarge the circle of trust and our common striving for a safe, sunny afternoon, near to flowering trees and under a very blue sky. In June Jordan, 1994, from the essay, A Powerful Hatred. And the last piece, It's a poem called Remember. Remember the sky that you were born under. Know each of its stars' stories. Remember the moon. Know who she is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn that is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life, and her mother's, and hers. Remember your father, he is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you you are, red earth, black earth. Yellow earth, white earth, brown earth, we are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animals, life, animal life, who all have their tribes, their families, their histories, too. Talk to them. Listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind. Remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Remember you are all people and all people are you. Remember you are this universe and this universe is you. Remember all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember language comes from this. Remember the dance language that life is, remember. And that's Joy Hargrove, our poet laureate, our first Native woman poet laureate. So let's sit for a moment. May all beings, everywhere, without limitations, all beings, two-legged, four-legged, winged, gilled all beings, find peace and ease, all beings find the path to freedom. I thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for this evening allowing me to share the Dharma. And I do have one announcement before we head out for a walking period. Tonight, or early this morning, is daylight savings time. So many of you who have renounced your phones and other electronics won't have that automatically show up for you. Um, So it's important that you do change your clocks in your room and also it's important for the bell ringers in the morning. (laughs) So we can all be in the hall bright, cheery-eyed at 5.30. (laughs) So again, it's time for a walking period. Yes? Spring forward? Oh, exactly. It's spring forward. So... If you go to bed at 10, please put your alarm to 11, or your clock to 11. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.